Hello and welcome to the Life Enchanted podcast. We're on a mission to optimize our lives through faith, health, wisdom, and much more. Thank you for joining us on our journey. Here now is our host, Nick Carlisle. What is good, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Nick Carlisle here, and welcome back to another episode of the Life Enchanted podcast, where I tend to nerd out on all things faith, health, interesting, and optimizing. If you're not already following me on Instagram, at nick.carlisle, that is, go ahead and find me on there, hit that follow button, send me a DM perhaps. I am very active on the gram and would love to connect with you personally. This episode, as always, is brought to you by MyLifeEnchanted.com, which is where you can find all things related to the Life Enchanted movement. I have a free 30-page eating guide on there. I have some links to some of my favorite products. I have some hoodies and some shirts I designed. The Truth Pack is on there as well. So go check all of that out. Thanks again for tuning in. Now let's get into it. My guest for this episode is James Maskell. James is an author, a speaker, a healthcare entrepreneur, a community builder, and the founder of the Functional Forum, which is the world's largest integrative medicine conference. His work's been featured in TEDx, The Huffington Post, The Doctor Blog, Mind Body Green, and numerous other big name health and wellness media outlets that I am a constant consumer of. In this episode, we talk about his innovative approach to healthcare, how relationships and community can help heal us, and more. So without further ado, here's my conversation with James Maskell. So let's start with a little bit of your background, man. How did you become so passionate and involved in the health and wellness space? Yeah, so actually I was born in a uh, community in Colorado. I grew up in an intentional community. I didn't realize that that was weird until I showed up at school age 11 in England and realized no one knew what a chiropractor was and Um, I was the only kid in school whose mom insisted I not be given antibiotics without her permission. (laughs) So I just knew that like I had a different uh, sense of health and sense of of life, really. Um, I had a rebellious phase after that where I felt like uh, my parents are insane and I needed to go down a more normal path. I did health economics at university and saw there was just a very uh, sad end coming to both America and the UK with regard to the you know exponential increases in healthcare costs that would bankrupt both economies in my lifetime. Mm. And uh, ultimately, um, after sort of a kick in the ass from the universe, uh, when I started my first job in London, realizing that like I needed to go and learn about that and to you know really think if anything in my my childhood would be a solution for that. And so 16 years ago, I moved to America and I took my first job working in a clinic, um, doing what uh, integrated medicine and, you know, the rest is history. I, I saw people reverse their chronic illness. I wanted to know, is that reproducible? Is it scalable? How, if we really want to, you know, change the curve on healthcare costs, we really need to get big swathes of the population healthy and back and off medication. Mm-hmm. And so that's been 16 years to try and work out like how to do that at a reasonable scale. Yeah. Give us a definition of integrative medicine or just explain it to us for people who are unfamiliar. Yeah. So my work actually has been around a different term and the terminology is actually not that 
interesting or useful actually um i you know i called my show the functional forum i i find myself in the world of functional medicine you know functional medicine is you know the, the different words i guess integrative just means you integrate different kinds of modalities. So typically integrative medicine means you integrate Western medicine and, and pharmaceuticals with anything else. So you could have integrative psychiatry that's like biofeedback and talk therapy and pharmaceuticals, or you could have integrative gastroenterology that's like mainstream gastroenterology plus you know food as medicine. So integrative just means the integration of different modalities. That was what I came to first. But it was in about 2000 and about five years into it, I started to realize that functional medicine, one, you know, was a consistent system. It's like a system that's taught to doctors for prioritizing integrative medicine. It has an inbuilt sort of prioritization system. And I recognized that that was going to be important if we were going to deliver this kind of care in an efficient enough way to become like a new standard of care. Mm -hmm. So that's when I started to learn about functional medicine. Also, it had a lot of momentum with medical doctors sort of making the switch to functional medicine and starting to get the word out. And so, you know, since 2014, um, I've been an advocate specifically for functional medicine to try and get, first of all, doc doctors to adopt it, and now uh, whole health systems to adopt it and to, you know, show ways to deliver it, to uh, get people off medication and get people to just being healthy and well, independent of the medical system. Mm -hmm. Can you create a juxtaposition for the for the listeners? I'm, I'm very familiar with functional medicine, but just between the conventional medicine model and then the functional medicine model, which is right in line with, with your first book, The Evolution of Medicine. Can you just speak to that and just highlight the differences in philosophy and training and schooling and education and all that? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, the three main differences I would say is, you know, in, in conventional medicine, the focus is on symptoms. And so, you know, the whole system is based around identifying symptoms, clustering those symptoms into a diagnosis, and then having typically a drug first approach to, you know, dealing with those symptoms. But in many cases, those drugs don't actually solve the problem. They just kind of like mark, get the symptoms to go away. Mm -hmm. And so like give an example of type two diabetes, you know, we live in a world today where, you know, that the standard of care for type two diabetes is metformin, which is a drug and insulin. Um, and that combination can never reverse your type two diabetes. You can just manage it for years on end. And typically, you know, if you, if you do manage it for years on end, other things come up because there's an underlying dysfunction mm -hmm. in functional medicine with type two diabetes, you would look to, you know, change the diet, change the lifestyle, deal with the stress, the environmental issues, the food. And in many, many cases proven all the way from Silicon Valley to, you know, health systems, you can reverse type two diabetes and you can live without insulin and metformin, but it just requires uh, the patient to participate, which is the second core mm. thing. So if the first core thing is that, you know, you're really looking to address the root cause. The second thing is that the patient is an active participant in their care. Um, and that's, you know, that the patient is sort of doing the medicine at home, at work, and in the 167 hours a week that they're not in the doctor's office. And then the third part is that it sees 
you know, the, the patient and the body of the patient as an integrated whole. So in conventional medicine, you have specialists depending on the geography, right? So you have mm -hmm. a gastroenterologist for the gut and a neurologist for the brain. And the neurologist doesn't read the gastroenterology journals and the gastroenterologist doesn't read the neurology journals. But ultimately, what we're coming to learn through the new science of, you know, understanding of biology is that there's a pr profound connection between the gut and the brain. So who's in charge of that? Yeah. Right. A functional medicine doctor is in charge of that because they understand that there's a, a, a sort of a connection between the gut and the brain. And so therefore, you know, they're in, they're sort of like I, I like to think of the functional medicine doctor as a sort of a generalist or even a super generalist because it's the opposite of the specialty. It's really about understanding how their consistent uh, parts mix together. Yeah. One of the analogies that I've heard used by Chris Kresser, which I think is is spot on and kind of helps illustrate the differences as well as the the rock in the shoe analogy. If you have a rock in your shoe and it's causing your foot pain, conventional medicine will give you aspirin and sure that will help the pain, but the rock is still in your shoe. You're still going to have pain. You're going to still have to take the aspirin, which might lead you to having to take other drugs to man manage the side effects from the aspirin, whereas functional medicine will just help you take the rock out of your shoe, which I think is a, is a great way to put it. It seems like the functional medicine approach and just the word and just how effective it is it seems to be getting out more and more, especially via podcasts and YouTube. And it just kind of seems like it's gaining momentum. Do you see a shift taking place or have you heard about shifts taking place in medical training, traditional medical training or in university or medical school or anything? Interesting. Yeah. So you have to think about how, where's the friction, right? So the least friction is actually in the patient, right? They can learn about it. They can listen to the podcast. They can listen to, they can read books. You know, there's so many amazing functional medicine doctors have written books on how functional medicine is applied to almost every condition out there. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's where you see there's just a huge demand now for functional medicine where it's where there's slightly more friction is like in independent practice. So that's been my work is that I've been really involved in helping doctors make the switch to functional medicine in the independent practice world. That was really the focus of my first book, The Evolution of Medicine. The third place where functional medicine is like now slowly creeping in is at an institutional level where big institutions are trying to work out how to deliver functional medicine, led notably by the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine, which has been up and running for seven years mm -hmm. and um, is now a, a core part of the Cleveland Clinic. The very last bastion and the sort of slowest thing to move with the most friction is medical education. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Max Planck said science changes one funeral at a time. And I think <laughs> it's sad to say that that is the way that it goes in that, you know, I've, I've actually had on my pod, podcast recently, a couple of medical students who love functional medicine, who started this incredible TikTok that's had 400 million views um, called Medicine Explained. And they were just, you know, part of their, um, origin story was that they just realized that you know they were not getting any of that kind of stuff in medical school mm -hmm. and you know if covid did nothing else it really alerted everyone to the importance of functional medicine concepts one example vitamin d yeah. your vitamin d level really determines more than almost anything else 
the how bad your you know COVID case is going to be. If you have really low vitamin D, you're going to have a tough case. And if you have optimal vitamin D, you're not even going to know you had COVID. Mm -hmm. And so just that one marker, like surely now every doctor in the country knows about vitamin D, how to test for it, how to dose it, how to deliver it. Surely it's available on insurance. It's none of those things. And that's the crazy world we live in. And that's why, you know, people like myself are on the front lines inside the medical system trying to get the whole system to like get with the program. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Are you optimistic that they will get with the program? Well, you know, it's interesting because I'm, I'm optimistic that a medical system will emerge that will be with the program, but I don't know if they will do it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm involved today in creating you know, a system and technology for that can be adopted inside the system, inside insurance, in partnership with existing uh, systems that optimizes the sort of efficiency of delivery of functional medicine, because that's, you know, that's what I see as being needed in order to reduce the friction and see the transformation happen. Because I don't think there's a lot of like either desire or know-how inside the system to learn how to operationalize this kind of care. Yeah, and, and it's a two-way street, as you mentioned, with the second pillar being patient um, participation and diligence in what they are doing. And I think part of that is a, is a cultural issue and societal issue in, in our Western world that people want the pill. They want the, the one sentence that's going to help them. They want you know the one supplement or the one shot or whatever it is. And there's, there's a lot that goes into that with, you know, pharmaceutical companies being able to market to us on television and people seeing what they want and doctor visits only being 11 minutes long on average and people going in there and demanding certain drugs and all that. But how does how does that play into all of it? Just the participation of the patient and the the quick fix society that we live in? Yeah, look, that's a significant point of friction, right? Where, you know, the, the pharmaceutical industry over the last hundred years has affected the mind of the masses to such a degree that they don't even really understand that a long-term elegant fix like reversing your type 2 diabetes is even possible, never mind that you would want that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so that's a hundred years that we've got to undo. And ultimately that's really the focus for the last three years when I came to recognize is that it's very difficult to break out of the norm by yourself, but it's actually quite easy to break out of the norm as a community, as a group. And that's mm -hmm. my second book that came out in January 2020 was called The Community Cure. And it really showcased that when you take this operating system of medicine that's functional medicine and you deliver it in a group structure, not only is it much more effective, like people can make the changes and be supportive in making the changes and be accountable and solve loneliness and all the things that go towards making chronic illness, but also now it's efficient enough to be delivered inside the payer system mm. and Medicare will pay for it and commercial insurance will pay for it in a way that they haven't paid for one-on-one -on -one functional medicine. And so that's, you know, since COVID hit, I've been, 100% focused on getting functional medicine delivered inside the system, because ultimately, if we want to bend the curve on healthcare costs, we really need to focus on delivering it in a way so that poor people can access this care, because it's been a bastion really for the very rich or the very desperate. Mm -hmm. And we need to find ways to serve that kind of middle America that is 
either a little bit chronically ill or significantly chronically ill or pre-diabetic or pre-autoimmune, like they may be in this pre-phase where they're not really well, but they're, you know, they're not really sick. And we need to get to those people because ultimately if we can get those people to have a dramatic change in their health culture, that really seems to me the only way that we can stave off this kind of fiscal cliff that we're going to fall off if we don't get it right. Yeah, let's let's dive into your new book, man, The Community Cure. Tons of people are talking about it, the philosophy behind it. It's it's a new way to think about things, but it also is very just logical and makes a lot of sense, especially because it's a lot more expensive for a doctor to spend one hour with one person than that same doctor to spend one hour with 10 people. So you talked about the, the, the community aspect of the healing and the journey and the functional medicine. Talk to us about like the, the trials that have been done or the efficacy or the optimal size of groups going in there. Just talk to us about what your vision looks like for this community cure. Well, look, I'll just give you sort of like one example is this Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine that I mentioned. So at the beginning, you know, they get all excited. They got a small pilot program. They get Dr. Mark Hyman in there. They start seeing patients one-on-one and, you know, it starts moving along. Guess what? There's a ton of demand because now the first major medical institution is like endorsing this way of going. And, you know, and so they see patients very soon they realize that the demand is way higher than the supply and they need to do something. And so they, they sort of adapt into this group model where now if you want to qualify to see one of the functional medicine doctors at the Cleveland Clinic, you need to go through this 10-week, two-hour-a-week um, group that's run by uh, dietitians and health coaches and physician's assistants, not even a doctor. And the res- so, and then in the last three years, we've now seen the data that's come from those trials inside the Cleveland Clinic. And what did we learn? In 2019, we learned that functional medicine one-on-one is more effective, like significantly more effective over six months than conventional medicine. And not just any conventional medicine, than Cleveland Clinic functional medicine, which is like the best standard of conventional medicine you can get. So functional medicine better than conventional for chronic disease. Then just literally two weeks ago, we got the data from the second set, which is from the groups. And that shows that not only is group functional medicine better outcomes than conventional, than than one-on-one functional medicine, but also the costs are significantly lower. So here you have now an emerging sort of like um, spectrum of care. And so the results are better in the groups. And so ultimately, when I learned about that three years ago now, I was just like, look, this is the way. This is the way that it's going to be rolled out. And ultimately, we need to reduce the friction to have that kind of care executed, not just in Cleveland, but in every state of the union Mm -hmm. and also in every country of the world. Because really, like this is the sort of magic formula of um, chronic disease reversal done in an efficient enough way. Um, And also, like when you solve loneliness, you solve the social determinants of health, a lot of other benefits accrue to society. And so from an economist's point of view, I just realized we needed to triple down on this. That's why I wrote the book um, to describe, I described the Cleveland Clinic, but I also show that this group functional medicine approach is being used in everything from uh, pre-pediatric care. So, you know, in maternity care, the biggest group that exists right now is called um, Centering Pregnancy. It reduces preterm birth 
by 35%. And all you're doing is sticking women in a group while they're pregnant to talk about what's going on for them. Wow. And, the, the, in, and just by reducing the social stress of being an isolated mom, you can reduce preterm birth by 35%. Preterm birth is not a chronic disease, but you can see that you know these kind of same factors like social stress are playing into whether uh, mothers have a preterm birth. So that's, a, that's on one end. And then on the other end, you've got you know, Dr. Jim Gordon going into Kosovo after the war and showing that if you put people in groups of 11 and you do mindfulness-based stress reduction, you can get an 80% reduction in PTSD. So, you know, look at that spectrum wow. of, of what's possible. And then when you start to get granular, you see Ornish has done it in cardiology and Terry Walls is doing it in multiple sclerosis. And all these different people have taken this group model and used this sort of health creation group model and created um, scalable systems for reversing, you know, really tough chronic illnesses. It seems to make a lot of sense that the, the relational aspect fits well in the functional medicine program because... I feel like relationship is is one of the pillars of of wellness and life. So it makes perfect sense that it's effective and that it should be there, right? That you know we are created by love, for love, through love, and and being able to connect with others and uh, get outside of ourselves and share things and be held accountable um, and help each other and you know check in with people and have support and not feel lonely. These things are it, it's almost impossible to articulate how important that is for the individual. And I've seen it in my own life. I've spoke about this on the podcast as well, but just being able to get stuff out of your body and out of your mind and express things that are burdening you is, is so therapeutic. You've mentioned chronic disease a couple of times. Can you explain to listeners what chronic disease is? Yeah, I mean, chronic disease is what 90% of healthcare costs go to. Uh, it's diseases that, you know, you have over a period of time, not something that comes and goes. You know, the, the biggest chronic illnesses are uh, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, um, asthma, uh, you know, things like um, Alzheimer's, any disease that's, that's chronic and hangs around uh, a long time and they affect all bodies, parts of the system. You know, all the autoimmune diseases are, are chronic diseases. Um, it's really, you know, illnesses that, that uh, are, are sort of of complex cause and, you know, are, um, that, la that last inside the body and don't go away of their own. Um, they, they don't have, they are not self ending like a, getting a cold for instance. In our, manifested from poor lifestyle and environment conditions, right? And I, I know that the CDC says that 60% of adults have one chronic disease and 40% of adults have two or more chronic diseases, which is a staggering number. And that five to 10% of diseases are considered genetic, meaning that 90 to 95% of all diseases can be prevented via lifestyle and diet. And I know that the, the main contributors there uh, tobacco use and poor nutrition and lack of physical activity and excessive alcohol use, which is, you know, uh, very I'm glad, common. I'm glad you mentioned those because there is a study, and I talk about this in my book, to show that loneliness or social isolation is a bigger driver of chronic disease and all-cause mortality than those four that you just mentioned. And wow. just think about all the efforts wow. that have been put in at the public health level to try and change behaviors with smoking and drinking and poor food and all that stuff. And yet loneliness is the biggest driver. And that's why these group visits are so powerful because you're really recreating friendships. You're introducing people who want to get healthy to each other 
And in my opinion, you know, that is that is um, the most important thing that we need to be doing for people with chronic illness, not just because it's the biggest driver of all cause mortality, but also because community is the structure for changing behavior. So it's a two it's a two part thing. You, you bring new people who want to get healthy together into a group. Not only does it solve their loneliness, which is the biggest driver of all cause mortality, but also now they can all hold each other accountable to do, you know, what they're already trying to do. Like everyone, I think in the country, if they're unhealthy, they have an intention to, you know, to try and get healthy, but where the rubber meets the road is, you know, really accountability. Um, and, and, you know, and, and sort of, um, like doing it and ultimately like why why that doesn't happen it can be trauma it can be trauma from the medical system it can be all kinds of issues that stand in the way but the only real way to work that out is to be in community and to like talk about that with other people and um that's why we see i mean we know you can't reverse alcoholism with drugs or doctors but you yeah. can in a group and ultimately what i came to realize through writing the book is that chronic disease is a lot more like alcoholism than it is you know, being hit by a car or getting an infection. And so we should treat it accordingly. Yeah. Forgive me because I'm blanking on where this was, but I've heard you uh, speak about some type of a program that a country put in. It might might have been Ireland, but people were wearing like a purple badge or something. Is this ringing yeah. a bell for you? Yeah. Can you, can you talk to us about what happened there? It's the best story ever. And I'm excited you asked about it because I feel like, you know, if I if, if I ran for office one day, it's the most obvious policy that you would do because it's just such a dramatic result. You can re read about it. If you just Google Froome, F-R-O-M-E, loneliness, if you just Google that, there'll be articles that you can read about. And actually, I was, I was interviewed this week by the guy, Dr. Julian Abel, who is one of the founders of that project. But ultimately, what they realized is that people were lonely and they set about on a multi-year plan to cure loneliness. So the first thing they did was they spent a year to identify all the groups that existed. And this is in a town of 115,000 in the UK. And in that first year, they found 2000 groups and they whittled it down to 400 into a database. And that 400 met every week, they could have new people join, it was free, it was accessible. And then what they did is they started to recruit um, local volunteers who would act as sort of conduits to connect people who were lonely to that database. And they also hired health coaches inside the five medical clinics that service those 115,000 people to sit with people who are lonely. And they would sit with them in the doctor's office half the time. And then they would also sit in these talking cafes, which were essentially just like tea and coffee shops around the around the town um, where they could sit. And at any point, anyone, if you saw someone wearing one of these green lanyards um, or you went to one of these talking cafes in the prescribed time, you could talk to someone and they would connect you into this database of 400 groups and find two or three of them for you to join based on your interest preferences. Some are church related, some are sport related, some are interest related, you know, there's a whole range and ultimately you know, in the next phase, by facilitating this, ER visits went down, emergency room visits went down by 14% 
And in the county, in the same time, ER visits went up by 28.5%. So that's a ridiculous um, shift. And the amount of money saved is also ridiculous. Mm. And so, because the ER is where like most of the cost is driven. So ultimately, you can see that, you know, that, that, um, you know, if you, if you were to implement that, let's say, in the state of California, like, it wouldn't be that difficult to build a database of every group in California, you know, do it city by city. Um, and then, you know, getting people to, you know, sort of volunteer to support using the doctor's offices, like that would not be that difficult to execute. And you would see a significant, um, increase in health you would see a significant drop in loneliness and you would see a significant drop in healthcare costs the only problem is that you have kind of for-profit systems that run healthcare in america and so a 14 percent reduction in er admissions isn't really incentivized here like it is in the uk where you have a single payer system mm. but ultimately like that's that's the kind of policy that I think would be transformational for um, society, for this country, and for anywhere that adopted it. Yeah. How do you see remote participation impacting this? Do you think it's as effective to join via teleconference and Zoom and all these things, or do you think in person is is a critical component of of the healing? So right now we are replicating the in-person results with virtual. Um, it's a company called Heal Community. It's healcommunity.com. We partner with clinics that bill insurance and Medicare to deliver sort of virtual groups as a service. We combine, uh, the, we use functional medicine as the operating system. We combine like weekly Zoom calls with um, a, a technology that allows people to communicate kind of like a Facebook group, but all HIPAA compliant. And, mm. you know, we're seeing that there are some downsides to not being in person. Like there's a real energy potential in person that's hard to replicate, but there are also a ton of benefits to virtual uh, accessibility, ease, not having to drive across town, um, you know, the cost, all of these things really make it um, very viable. And so we're excited. And, and right now, you know, you can ask your doctor if a heal community might be right for you. And, you know, we can get your doctor prescribing these episodes of care in as little as 30 days. Yeah, that's awesome. And because virtual meetings and participation in things is becoming so ubiquitous right now, especially with schools. I'm a high school teacher. So everyone in the past year has attended something virtually. So it seems like that's going to help out the cause as well. So let's talk a little bit about diet. I want to step away from the functional medicine and stuff real quick. And I just want to, because I have you on here, I want to take advantage uh, because you have a wealth of knowledge. So just to give some some practical, tactical things for the listeners, how do you, and this is going to be loaded, so feel free to take this any direction you want, but how do you suggest that people approach their relationship with food? Um, I'm not sure if I'm the, the best person to talk about it because like I have my own, you know, relationship with food that I've been dealing with for 40 years and, you know, really <laughs> took me building, you know, a community of men here in Sacramento. I'm part of a, you know, men's group and, you know, I've really had to like, go in personally and start to real really identify you know my own issues with it i ultimately mm -hmm. feel like everyone that one of the key things about functional medicine is we is, is one of the the cheapest most effective things we can do is an elimination diet mm -hmm. where you just take out all the anti the inflammatory foods for let's say you know a week see how you feel and then one by one 
add in a food, a new food every two days and just notice what's happening and write a diary. Like that costs almost nothing to do, but it's so powerful for people to really understand, you know, what is happening? What is my relationship with food? What out of these foods, how does it affect me? And very few people take the time to do that, but it's such an incredible, you know, journey to go inward and really understand yourself. And so I highly recommend that as a starting point. What foods would you suggest people eliminate down to? Like, which ones do you think that they should start with, would you suggest? I mean, the most inflammatory ones, you know, are wheat and sugar and eggs and corn um, and peanuts. You know, those are kind of typically the ones that um, that people recommend to bring out. You know, there's a lot of other theories, but that's your standard kind of elimination diet. Yeah. I followed the GAPS protocol a couple of times, and I think that's a great way to, way to start is eliminate everything except a nutrient-dense meat stock made from just like some grass-fed beef knuckles and joints and boil that up and get all the gunk in there and blend it all together and then just start with a couple days of a good meat stock and then start to add in some fermented veggies and start to add in maybe some egg whites and then just keep going from there but yeah that i had um uh geez i'm blanking on his name but i had a doctor on the podcast who said that that is the gold standard of determining if you have food or food insensitivity is doing an elimination diet and keeping a food log and building back up your diet and seeing how you feel how you sleep how your energy is is going and just your pain and all that stuff so definitely suggest people check that out james we got to wrap it up man i know you're running out of time where can people find you online yeah, so Mr. James Maskell on Instagram is a good spot. Um, you can also, you know, Heal Community is the the program that we're delivering uh, in partnership with doctors. And, um, you know, you can uh, find, if you're a physician listening to this, you can go to the Evolution of Medicine. Um, you can, you know, you can get my book. You can ch- uh, check that out. But um, that's, that's what it is. Sweet. I'll link to all things James Maskell in the show notes. James, appreciate you, man. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Nick. Take yep. care. Later, guys. A special thanks to King's Kaleidoscope for the music heard throughout this episode. Also, a big shout out to Capital Floats, aka my favorite sensory deprivation and float tank facility in Northern California. I'm a frequent user there, and the experience is always transformative to say the least. If you're interested in floating and live in Northern Cal, make sure you use promo code LIFEENCHANTED with no spaces at checkout on their website. You'll save a whopping 40% off your first float and you will not find that deal anywhere else. Also, in regards to some of the content shared in these episodes, make sure you always consult your doctor before making any sudden diet or lifestyle changes. If you're interested in connecting with me, you can find me on Instagram at nick.carlisle or send me an email nick at mylifeenchanted.com.